you got into jazz in an interesting uh, period for the music uh, in the 1970s, uh, the early 1970s. There was a lot of change going on. Um, fusion had really taken hold, uh, and you kind of got into an older version of the music in a way. I, I wanted to start off by asking, what was it about jazz that, that hooked you as a young listener and musician? You know, David, that's a great question, but unfortunately, I don't think I have a great answer. Um, I don't know. The, the, um, it was the music. Now, what was it about it? I don't know. Uh, it was just those harmonies and those melodies and those lyrics and, and that feeling that I found uplifting. You know, as the years go by and I think more about it, you know, the kind of jazz that I really still turn to for for, for the most uh, sustenance is music that you could say really has one foot in the church. And by that, I don't mean anything having to do with religion, but having to do with the feeling of that African-American music of the late 19th century going into the 20th century that had that kind of lope and had that kind of swing. And maybe that's what I was looking for. You know, it was just that kind of rhythm and that kind of feeling of, um, of um, buoyancy. <laughs> so that's about the only way that I can really think about it. I, I don't think I was thinking about it at the time. Well, what, what were your? I mean, what were your friends into at the time? Were they all kind of listening like the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones? I mean, was it kind of odd for you to be into a, a, a music that? Oh yes, no, I was definitely the one out of ten, or one out of a hundred, or one out of one out of a thousand. You know, just like probably you and so many other folks uh, who like jazz at that. You know, in the. In that time, I mean, you're, you're younger than I am, but what I mean is, yeah, right, my friends would get together and uh, would be listening to um, The Who, and, you know, and I remember when the White Album came out, well, I was quite young at that time, and they would sit around and play the records, and then my turn would come, and I'd put on a jazz record, and the room would clear, you know, so that was <laughs> <laughs> probably, the, probably the same thing, you know. I mean, it wouldn't quite clear, a few of them would stick around, but yeah, right, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you've you've long had a a passion and a scholarly aptitude for for music of the swing era. What was it about the music of that period that that gave it such vitality and that's ultimately uh, given it staying power as a real cultural legacy? That's another great question. And I, again, I'm not sure that I really have a a definitive answer. Um, I mean, it was music created by a specific generation of people. These people tended to be born um, somewhere between 35 and 45 years after the abolition of slavery. And um, there was a certain time in American culture, and these people created music that had a certain buoyancy and a certain lift and a certain optimism and a certain desire to reach their peers, and, uh, you know, I mean, I'm sitting in my office here at the National Jazz Museum in Harlem while we speak, and I'm looking at a picture on the wall of Eddie Durham, you know, who's kind of looking at me while I'm talking to you, <laughs> and I, you know, and I'm just thinking that, you know, it was him and, and those people that I just loved the music that they played, and the music that they played was because they were born at a, a specific time into a specific world, and the music was part of... Um, part of dealing with that world in a positive way. You know, and that appealed to me. Why? I can't tell you why it first turned me on. I just heard it. I liked it. I felt like I wanted to dance, and I felt like I wanted to play it, and I wanted to study it. 
it just touched something in your soul, it sounds like. Yeah, right. You know, you actually got to play with some of these uh, musicians uh, when you were very young. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, it wasn't that I was such a good musician, I don't think. I think it was more that I was just probably the only 18-year-old or 15-year-old or 20-year-old uh, who was hanging around these people who knew their tunes and, and was so anxious to sit in either on the saxophone or the piano. And eventually, when I moved to New York uh, to go to music school, and I was living around the corner from a place called the West End, where Phil Schapp used to um, give these great musicians one night a week. So you had Earl Warren one night, and Sammy Price one night, and Eddie Durham one night, and Joe Jones on another night. And these guys were not working much at that time. And so the fact that there was this kid who lived around the corner who was willing to sit in and or sub you know, if a, if a saxophone player or if a, uh, a, a piano player didn't show up, I think that's how it happened. So I was just, I was in the right place at the right time. Well, yeah, we're talking about the 1970s, you know, kind of before Wynton Marcellus comes along, before there's sort of a, you know, uh, the rise of a sort of, you know, jazz classicism movement or jazz new traditionalism, whatever you want to call it. I mean, and that's something I think a lot of people don't realize today is that at that time in the 1970s, a lot of musicians from the swing era were, as you said, they weren't finding much work. and they were... No, some of them um, uh, were working on Wall Street as messenger boys or messenger men. And some were working as bank guards. And some weren't working at all. And, uh, no, it was quite, quite, uh, quite tragic in that sense. But, the, but the, the, what, what offset it was now that they did have a place to play and and there was a place where they were honored and revered by a small but very fervent group of disciples. So it was great to be part of that because we knew who they were. And because they had a gig now every Wednesday night or every Friday night or whatever it was, you know, the the relatively few but fervent people who cared would come. And it became like a, um, you know, I wouldn't say, I don't know if cult has a pejorative meaning, but it became, you know, quite a in-group of things. It was really fascinating. And I got to know these people and you know i guess it happens to everybody as you get older now um as one gets older you wish you could go back and the things you would have said or the the things they said that you didn't realize what they were saying but it was quite a time and it was uh, i was so blessed if that's a word uh to just to be around these people gosh i mean i was i was very lucky um, you know, if if I were to ask you to teach a course in American history for the 20th century, uh, what part would jazz play in that course? Well, I think jazz is probably the best way to get into pretty much any any thread of trying to understand and get into uh, the history of the 20th century around the world, uh, and specifically in America. The way I used to think of it is... Uh, or still do think of it as if you had a crossword puzzle. And somehow, by the students doing this crossword puzzle, you were going to uh, broach all the topics of life in America in the 20th century. You know, you just have to put the name Louis Armstrong across the center of that crossword puzzle, and through the intersections of the letters of his name, um, you can go anywhere. Or to use a double negative, there's nowhere that you can't go. I mean, no matter what it is, it relates somehow to Armstrong's life, or his life relates to them. Yeah, that's very true. It's, I think that's one reason why it's so appropriate in a way that, you know, his symbolic birthday remains, you know, the 4th of July in 1900. I mean, I know we've 
since learned that he was actually born a year later in August. But uh, I love it that every year on the 4th of July, there's this sort of symbolic celebration of Louis Armstrong's birthday because he does seem to be such a huge part of, you know, 20th century American history and culture. Well, it's true. And, you know, and, you know we're all immigrants. Um, and then there's, you know, the African-American population, who I don't think it's fair to call them immigrants, and they were brought over as slaves. But, um, for instance, my family background, my family came over from Eastern Europe where they were being persecuted, and my grandfather uh, didn't know his date of birth because, you know, as they were running away from the Cossacks, nobody said, go back and get the birth certificates, although I don't think they had birth <laughs> certificates anyway. And um, so he took July 4th, 1890 as his birthday. Uh-huh. And I don't think it was that uncommon for people who didn't know. Right. And And I think that Part of Armstrong's story really intersects with anyone and everyone who's listening to, to, to your broadcast or anybody who's living in America. Somehow that story intersects, and, 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 and we really don't have to, to dig that far to find how it intersects with his story. And uh, so, yeah, so that's, that's, how I th- that's how I hear it. And the older I get, the more I listen to the music, the more I, I kind of hear that in the music. I hear the interconnectedness. You are the artistic director of the National uh, Jazz Museum in Harlem. Uh, if I or any other listener were to stop by the museum, uh, what would we be able to see and do and hear? Well, you might be doing what we have a gentleman here right now from Portland, Oregon, uh, who just walked in and he wanted to hear some of the music of the Savory Collection, which, David, you you were so wonderful when I came out. We did that radio show, which people still listen to, on the Savory Collection, these unknown... Um, 100 hours plus worth of music from the 1930s and 40s that was broadcast and preserved and that now that the museum has the the only copy of. And uh, so you come in, you can listen to that to your heart's desire. This is the only place right now in the world until we resolve all these contractual and legal issues that you can actually listen to the darn stuff. Uh, You can do that. Uh, We have concerts, classes, lectures, happenings, all kinds of great stuff. We have a website, which is uh, www.jmih.org, or just go to Google and Google Jazz Museum in Harlem. And we have uh, literally hundreds of events that we produce every year. So that's what you could do. You could go to one of our events. You could sit in our beautiful visitor center. Uh, we have a piano here. There's live music on occasion. And uh, become a member of the family. It's really kind of a, a family affair. Well, I know, I know you're quite busy uh, with your duties as that and your duties as an as a, uh, active working musician and educator and scholar and writer. Um, and, and part of your you know, work involves going around the world quite a lot, playing jazz and talking about it. How has jazz kind of uh, transmuted into other cultures? And, and do you find uh, a different kind of appreciation for it abroad than you do in America? Yeah. But that's to be expected. I mean, I mean, um, how could it be the same as it was in America? So, of course, it's different in, in every country. I mean, to country drop, I mean, last week I was in India, and next week I'll be in Norway. And I know that I'll discover in Norway, because I've been there already, what I discovered in India, which is that jazz is really like a, a lingua franca. Um, you can meet anyone in any country, and within two or three people or two or three conversations or something, you'll find somebody who likes jazz music. And in the other countries, it's frequently um, aligned to something more than just the music, because the music represents freedom to so many people. It was music that was 
so famously broadcast on the Voice of America by Willis Conover uh, for so many years, and still is part of of um, of the musical soundtrack of so many people's lives. That jazz just represents a spirit, and again, it's the spirit of of people like Eddie Durham and Louis Armstrong and Lester Young and Benny Goodman and and all these people who were born in the early 20th century who created this idiom, and now there are so many wonderful young artists, Jonathan Batiste and Christian McBride, and the list goes on and on here in the States, and an equal amount of brilliant young musicians in every country in the world. So people, uh, I don't think that people feel that, that they're, that, they're doing an American thing and subject anymore to the approval of American jazz musicians. I think no matter what country they're in, they feel like they got their own thing. And jazz is, I think jazz at, at its root is an equation that um, insists upon the individual um, attitude of the person who's playing it. So someone, in, no matter who's playing it in whatever country, it's immediately valid with their own personal input. I think this sounds like uh, Groucho Marx. <laughs> I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, but I think you could probably extract something from it, or, or maybe Professor Irwin Corey. <laughs> no, I, I think I think you nailed it. I think you yeah. really. I think it's exactly <clears throat> what you yeah. said. Um, this is just kind of apropos of. I just want to ask you this because I I I know how much you love this particular artist, and and uh, people who've listened to the show over the years have heard this particular artist a lot. But what is it that you love so much about Lester Young? Lester Young. Um, gosh, I don't know what to say about him, really, except that, uh, you know, everybody, most people I know, uh, in the course of their lives, they find, you know, there's an artist or some music or someone, you know, who really, really speaks to them. And it's some just magical combination of things, of of the the music or the writing or the movie or the painting or the food or whatever it is that this one person produces, it just really speaks to you. And early on in life, I heard the music of Lester Young, and it just spoke to me. It went in to my head the same way that, like, language does. It didn't even sound so much like music in the sense that uh, it just sounded like someone talking. And throughout the years, uh, Lester Young, for me, is almost like what... uh, uh, religious figures for for most other people it's a kind of like a guidepost in my life and something i keep returning to and find uh, joy and sustenance and inspiration and in that's pretty much all i can say what kind of advice would you give to a 13 year old version of yourself today oh by the way we, we were talking about groucho marx for a second yeah uh uh-huh. harpo says hello <laughs> but anyway, what would I? You know, their mother's maiden name was Schoenberg, but that's a whole other story. Oh, I did not uh, know. Yeah, we'll have to talk yeah. about that some other time. But getting back to a thirteen-year-old. Um, uh, by the way, Brent's listening to this right now. He's laughing because he. <laughs> but anyway, um, <laughs> what would I say to a thirteen-year-old now? What What would the question be? I mean, what, what would the context be? Well, if say a thirteen year old version of yourself uh, came into your office and said, "Mr. Schoenberg, a version of myself," I'd say, "Get mental health 
I said, get some help immediately. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's let's say a, a non a thirteen year old non version of yourself. But okay. say I was a thirteen year old. I came into your office at the National Jazz Museum in Harlem, and I said, Mr. Schoenberg, I want to make jazz my life. I want you know oh. to breathe it, live it, maybe even make a living from it. What what should I do? What how should I go about doing that? Well, that's a rough one. Um, but the, I guess the first thing I would do is I'd, I'd give them some music to listen to, and uh, or her, some music to listen to, and I would, you know, try and figure out where their tastes were, and then I would immediately insist that they learn to play the piano, and I'd give them some books to read. That's what that's what it would be. It would be piano lessons reading some good writing on the music, listening to a lot of it and trying to figure out what it was, where their taste really centered. And then um, have a very frank talk with them and their parents, or him or her and their parents, about how that you really can't make a, a living in jazz. And there are so many great musicians right now um, who certainly can't make a living playing anymore. That's why so many are teaching. And even those that teach are a very small percentage. And that, um, in a sense, you have as much chance of making a living as a jazz, museum, a jazz musician as you do you're becoming the village blacksmith or something. Um, it's not an occupation for the 21st century. So you kind of talk like that, and then that evolves into something like where, and I've done this for years, when people really say that they want to go into the arts, I kind of, in a very positive sense, discourage them. Mm-hmm. And if they keep coming back and it's something that they must do and there's no other way for them, then we go into the second stage, which is, okay, well, you've, you've been bitten with this bug, with a, a negative <laughs> construction, but, you know, you've got this thing you want to do, and how are you going to get through life with this thing? <laughs> and make no living from it because it's... Uh, there's no living to be made from it. Why is the piano so important, do you think, uh, for, for somebody who wants to really, you know, understand and play the music better? Oh, because you have ten fingers, you can play ten notes on the piano, and you can physically see the relationship of the notes in a way that you can't on any other instrument. And so if you really want to get into the music, then you really have to understand it. And if you want to understand it, then you have to understand the rhythm, the harmony, and the melody. And playing the piano is the way that you do that. Um, 99% of all the best musicians I've met in my life all play the piano. They may not play it like a professional, but they can play the piano. And that's why also, I also say because it's a meditative pursuit. And if this is a typical 13-year-old, they are going to need some meditation, and they're going to need some time away from the insanity of this media world, uh, deluge of media and information that we all suffer from. And playing the piano for me, and of course, I mean, it could be playing any instrument for anyone or, or doing any other activity that can lead to, med- to a meditative state, but um, I think that uh, playing the piano is probably the best way to do it, because uh, the one... You know, at the one time you're working on your musical skills and your intellectual skills, and on the other time you're also working, you're also developing your your heart and your and your feeling and your emotions, 
And when you really get into playing the piano, everything else di- disappears. Um, I, the last question I just want to ask kind of related a little bit to what we were just talking about, you know, what you would say to a 13-year-old and everything and kind of, you know, in, in some ways painting a somewhat daunting picture of what it's like today for somebody to try to go into jazz or go into the arts in general. But that said, what importance, what significance does jazz have now in 2013 in, in our lives, in our culture? That's another great question that I'm going to fail being able to give you a really good answer for. Uh, it's a great question, and I don't know really what the answer is. Well, why, why should people come to the National Jazz Museum in Harlem? Oh, to have fun. They should come here to have fun. Um, jazz is fun. It's not only fun, and it's very serious. It, it can be any number of things. But the pursuit of it and the performance of it and the listening to it and the camaraderie that's part of the social life of listening to jazz. I'm not talking about listening at home with your headphones, but which is part of it too, but you know, it's getting out to where jazz is played and talking to other people who love it and talking to the musicians and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, you should... I offer jazz as a path to, uh, to joy. And that's really what it is. And then we can talk and analyze and get serious about it later. But the thing about jazz is that it's so spontaneous when it's really done well that you as a listener, you really partake in the experience and participate in it because the vibes that you send out affect the music that's being played. I mean, if I'm playing a Brahms piano piano sonata, yes, if there's an enthusiastic audience, the, the performer might play a little bit differently, a little, you know, be in a better frame of mind or have some communication. But the notes are going to be exactly the same. They may be a little bit faster, a little bit slower, or whatever, but they're going to louder, softer, but they're going to be exactly the same. In the jazz performance, what comes out of the jazz band is... Uh, as much a reading of their personalities as it is a, a reading of the people that they're playing for. So it's a really participatory thing, and it's fun, and it swings. So that's the reason to come to the Jazz Museum, is to come to a place that does it, or, you know, go to here. You have the wonderful educator and musicians like Brent Wallerab and others out your way, you know, who present events and who do things, and, and you're going to walk away from that feeling better than when you walked in. Thank you so much. Hey, it's just just a blast. It's just fun just to get to talk to you again. It's been a while. So yeah, it has been. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I yeah. Miss you, and I hope I can get out that way. I hope so too. We can yeah. up again, or you come here. 